Psalm 131, very short psalm, um, and yet very rich. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Our Father, you find us this morning in a thousand different places, having had different types of weeks, all coming from different stories, and yet all needing the same thing that the psalmist David is trying to teach us in Psalm 131. Because, Lord, we have busy, proud hearts. And we need to learn what it is to come to you with the heart of a child. So we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that you would show us Christ as the only solution to our deepest needs. Would you do that and would you get all the glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard of something called childhood amnesia? You may not have heard of it, but I guarantee you, most of you in this room, if you're not presently an infant, have it. Um, Childhood amnesia means the inability to remember the very early stages of childhood, the first two, two and a half years of your life. Most adults don't have clear memories of life before about three years old. And at one time, we assumed that the reason was that up to that age, the the brain is simply not capable of forming long-term memories. And now, increasingly, studies are showing that that's not the case, that actually you are able to uh, form long-term memories younger than three years old, um, but you're not able to retain them for the simple reason that you don't quite have the memory banks And as so many stimuli are coming at your average three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, that as you grow, essentially your brain had too many things to keep up with, too many new problems to solve, too many new skills to learn, and essentially, uh, I don't know if uh, if this will make sense to younger folks, but you had to tape over those memories. Essentially, you had to clear the banks to make room for new things to go in your head. And so essentially, none of us really remember what our first birthday was like. And so that, that sort of gets us into this psalm because David is trying to deal with that problem of needing to remember what it was like to be very small. And if you're like David and if you're like me, and the Holy Spirit through His Word assumes that you are, you come into this room this morning, you come ready to approach this table, 
needing to be reminded and needing to be brought back to what it was like to be a very small child. Right? That's the only way we come into relationship with God is as children. And so this psalm approaches us and essentially says, what do we do with our busy, proud, anxious, preoccupied hearts? And it says we have to learn to be children again. We have to learn to be small. We have to learn to grow smaller. So let's look at what it means to come to God with the heart of a child. The first thing we see in this passage is childlike humility. Childlike humility. The real uh, boogeyman, the bad guy in this psalm that David alludes to in the opening verse is what we might call pride or haughtiness or arrogance of heart. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not, or my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, this is the king of Israel. This is a man who wears a crown, who is presumably the wealthiest person in the land, the most powerful person in the land. And he's saying to God, at the very least, even if he's not yet presently on the throne, he's already been anointed to be king by the prophet Samuel. And yet he's coming to God saying, I'm a little child. I want to keep my eyes down. I want to keep my heart not lifted up. The Puritans would have used the phrase, uh, vaunteth. (laughs) I don't want my heart to vaunt itself. You see, the, the bad guy in this psalm is pride. Uh, if I was going to recommend one resource on the issue of pride and humility, I can't think of anything better to put in your hands than C.S. Lewis's single chapter from his book, Mere Christianity, called The Great Sin. If you can get your hands on that, if you have a copy of Mere Christianity, The Great Sin, it's C.S. Lewis teasing through this issue of pride and humility. Pride, Lewis says, is the greatest sin, the sin from which all sins uh, uh, proceed, the sin that was the cause of the initial fall in the garden. He also says that sin is the un- or that pride is the universal sin. Everyone has this. And yet, no one, this is Lewis' argument, Lewis says, I've never seen anyone who's not a Christian confess this sin. It is the sin that we are quickest to see and to hate in others and quickest to excuse in ourselves. Lifting up our eyes too high. And essentially, again, I'm, I'm stealing from Lewis here. I'm just sharing Lewis with you. Lewis says, pride at its heart is enmity. Enmity with man and enmity with God. That it is at its core competition. And it, know, it does not know how to take pleasure in anything. Lewis makes the argument that other sins, you could argue have some sort of positive byproduct. He'll say that you can find good friendship amongst people, 
you know, who are living in a very sin, sinful lifestyle. You can find uh, good uh, 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 love and cheer amongst unchaste people, Lewis's fr- uh, phrasing there. But pride essentially only competes. It doesn't know even how to take pleasure except in winning. Right? You, the, the, the instinct that pride gives us is not to say, I want that thing, so much as to say, I want, it, I want more of it than you. It's not, I want to make good grades, it's, I want to be top of the class. It's not, I want to make money, it's, I want to make more money than you. It's not, I want to serve, it's, I want to be seen as the person who serves the most. It's that instinct that says, me first. I want to be front of the line. And we've got a lot of ways, don't we, of being front of the line, right? Little kids just cut in line, and they just say, me first. We may be more slippery with our pride than that, but I would suggest to you that we have just as many ways of being proud and haughty and looking to put ourselves ahead. You see the progression here in verse 1 that, that uh, pr- proud behavior doesn't start externally. It starts in the heart. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great for me. That word occupy is the language of walking and it's picking up this constant motif in the book of Psalms of the, your manner of life being the way you walk. Think of Psalm 1, that blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of sinners. So what we walk in comes from where our eyes have been, which comes from the heart. And so what the psalmist is telling us, friends, is that this arrogant spirit starts in the heart which means that we have the chance to see it before it gets out. But if it goes unchecked, then the next thing it does is starts directing where our eyes gaze. Directing where we set our vision and say, I should be there. I should have that. I should have gotten that job. I should have gotten that relationship. I should have that house. I should have been picked first. Three things that the Puritans give us that are components of true humility. True humility says at least three things. First, I am a creature. I am a creature. In other words, the first step in reaching this true humility is acknowledging my place in the created order that God himself has made all things and that I'm not the creator of the universe. And that might sound simple, but I guarantee you sometimes our hearts need to be reminded of that very simple fact. I'm a creature. Second, I'm a sinner. Right? If, if our mere creatureliness isn't enough to get us sort of down from our perch, the next thing, I'm a sinner. that I can't stand before God in my current condition. 
I can't stand before God and I cannot put myself in front of anyone else because any reason I might have to say that I should stand higher than you, the Holy Spirit sees as much sin in my own heart. The ground at the foot of the cross is level because we're all sinners standing before God. And then thirdly, the last thing that true humility says is that God is worthy. Right? The first two things, I'm a creature and I'm a sinner, the devils know that. And not only tremble, but hate God and have no humility. Only the Christian can say, I'm a creature, I'm a sinner, and God is lovely. God is excellent. God is enough for me. That's the steps toward true humility. It's the, it's the humility that enables us to look at our problems and our circumstances and say, like Jesus, His will be done. I can trust Him. It's what it looks like for our hearts to not be lifted up. You could think of the example of King David himself. Some writers uh, postulate that this might be a psalm written while David uh, has been anointed king and is on the run from King Saul, who's out to kill him now. And you could imagine what pride might do to the heart to say, wait a minute, the prophet has anointed me king. God has clearly chosen me to be king. Why is this usurper king Saul trying to kill me why am I having to hide in caves I should be on that throne can you imagine the bitterness and the frustration that could have worked in David's heart and I'm sure he felt those temptations it's what that humility is what enables him to be patient and wait for God's appointed time okay second thing we see in this passage Childlike humility, and really what proceeds from that, childlike contentment. Verse 2, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This really flows from the first thing, right? Contentment flows from humility. I, I would even argue you really can't have contentment until you have humility, you really can't say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm satisfied with what the Lord has given me until you're able to say, the Lord ought to be directing my steps, not me. You can't have true contentment without true humility. And a lot of Christians want to find contentment, don't we? We know it's wrong to covet, but we don't know how to stop. We know it's wrong to, to bicker in our hearts and... and uh, complain and, and think that I want this and I want that. We know that that, number one, is wrong, and number two, is not good for us. But what we don't often see is the fact that contentment is a byproduct of that humility. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs put it this way, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Did you hear that? Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And that's the image of verse 2. It's, it's really the dominant picture of, a psalm, of the psalm, like a weaned child is my soul. 
And that, that word for weaned, by the way, almost always in the Hebrew Bible means or, or uh, uh, suggests the idea of fullness. In, the, in other words, there's two ways we can sort of read this idea of a weaned child. We could read this as a weaned child who does not want to be weaned, right? Who is, is upset, who is upset because he wants to nurse, upset because she wants to nurse. But the image in the Hebrew Bible that this word almost always suggests is satisfaction and fullness. So the image here is of a full baby, not hungry anymore, resting with its mother. A satisfied child resting with its mother. Which means that growing in humility and growing in contentment for you looks like leaning back into God's bountiful provision for you. In other words, I, th- I think we tend to think of humility and contentment as this sort of uh, self-maledictory thing where we sort of whip ourselves and uh, you know, t- turn the heat off to make everything cold so that we sort of have to do without and be miserable and think somehow if I hit a certain level of miserable, then, then that sort of puts me up a rank with God and that's contentment. That's not the image, friends. The image of contentment for David here is leaning back and resting in the abundance of God's goodness to him. It's learning to have a thankful heart. It's learning to believe what God says about himself, that there is no good thing that, we, that he withholds from his children. It's learning in the midst of seeing a thousand things out there that I think, I, I would like that. I want that. I would like to have that job. I would like to have that bonus. I would like to be asked to go uh, uh, to dinner with those people. I would like to have those friends. I would like to have that status. I would like to have that level of popularity. I would like to have children. I would like to have financial stability. It looks like looking at those things and being able to say, God has dealt bountifully with me. God has dealt marvelously, generously with me. And there's no good thing that he withholds. It's to say, where I stand now is God's best for me. He is not withholding the good stuff. That's the image of this psalm that David is resting in God's bountiful provision. It, it, it doesn't look like making peace with a God who only sort of provides for you. It doesn't look like you being tolerated by God and going into survival mode. It looks like you taking a long look at the cross and hearing the voice of God singing over his beloved and rejoicing over you. It looks like you hearing the voice of Christ shouting over his bride, My beloved is mine, and I have found the one my soul loves. It looks like you resting in that truth. Which ironically means this for the child. If he's satisfied, if she's satisfied, it means that resting against his mother means that the child is just with his mother. 
See, contentment transforms your prayer life. Contentment transforms your devotional life. The contentment of true humility that comes from a childlike heart means that you have times in your prayer life where your list of things that you're asking God for doesn't go away, but for a moment it submits to your delight in being in His presence. It submits to your love of intimacy with your Father. When is the last time you felt content simply to be in God's presence? When is the last time you felt an overflow of thankfulness for all of His mercy and grace? That's how you'll really know when you become a humble person is when God Himself starts to be enough. So we talked about childlike humility, childlike contentment. Lastly, childlike hope. That's the third thing we see in this psalm. O Israel, verse 3, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Look, ultimately what is happening in this psalm, ultimately what David is telling us is that he's found a better hope. Is that he's found a better hope than the things that tempt him to lift up his heart, to lift up his eyes, to occupy himself with his own agenda. What he's saying is, Israel, I have found a better hope. And you should too. Put your hope in the Lord. That's what David is saying to his entire kingdom. Put your hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And you get the sense that he's struggled with this point. That he's felt the prideful thoughts in his heart. We know that David was not a perfect man. We know that he knew what it was like uh, to, to look out and see something that he wanted and say, I should be able to take that. We know that from his sinful affair with Bathsheba and the murderous activities that flowed from that and the cover-up and all the sin that he committed against her, against her husband, against his soldiers, against his entire kingdom and fundamentally against God himself. Which is why in Psalm 51, you may remember, he cries out to God, Against you and you only have I sinned. So you get the sense that he has struggled with this and come out on the other side and says, I found a better hope. What's the solid hope that David has? It's that God always, always, always keeps his word. And that he always, always, always provides for his people. Even when his will for their life is different from theirs. And we have the same hope, but friends, we can see that hope even more vividly than David, can't we? Look, this table that we're about to come to is about that hope. It's the solid hope that God always, always, always keeps his promises. And when he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's going to be good to his word even when that demands his own son. And when he says, I always, always, always will provide for you. 
Ultimately, we know that He is the one who provides the ultimate sacrifice in Christ Jesus. That at at the cross of Calvary, we see where our hope is. That though our sins are like scarlet, that He will make them white as snow, washed clean in the blood of Jesus. That, That we know that if our hearts accuse us, that He is greater than our hearts. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And seeing that better hope allows David to say, I can be small. I can be small and it doesn't reduce me. I can occupy a little space and it doesn't threaten me. You know what the flip side of that actually is? I can have all of my dreams come true and it won't inflate me. You see, that's what one author has called the freedom of self-forgetfulness. What the gospel enables you to do is to discover contentment and humility and hope that enables you to say, I can go without Or I can have all my dreams come true. And either way, the gospel is still my anchor. And my hope is in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It enables you to give God the future. Because you know that he always, always, always keeps his word. That he always, always, always is working both for your good and for his glory. That's what this table's about, friends. So as you prepare to come to this table, you can say, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. You can say to the Lord as you come to this table, I have calmed and quieted my soul. That I put my hope in the Lord. Let's pray, friends. Jesus, what a joy to know that you are God's provision for us. That where our sin has abounded, your grace has abounded all the more. That in your cross, we see the fullness of of God's love and God's provision, and that as we come to the table, we're reminded of that love. Lord Jesus, uh, would you be glorified, and would you sanctify us through the word that we've read this morning and through the table we're coming to now. In Christ's name, amen.